You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, this morning as we continue our study in the book of Daniel, we're going to talk about one of the areas of the Christian faith which generates a lot of curiosity, a lot of questions, a lot of skepticism, and a lot of speculation. We're going to talk today about the world of angels and demons, because today's passage, Daniel chapter 10, gives us a look into the unseen spiritual world of the angelic and the demonic. Now, angels and demons are popular subjects in movies and literature and art and New Age thinking. But in strong contrast to all of that nonsense, what we need today is a biblical perspective about angels and demons, because this is a very important matter. We're going to see that this is a matter that implicates the life of every believer. We need to know about it, and we need to know about it in a reliable way. And so we need to look to God's most holy word, which is the, the soul... Uh, the sole source of knowledge that we have that is always reliable that tells us the truth about spiritual matters. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Daniel chapter 10, and we're also going to look at some other passages from the Bible so that we can learn some reliable truths about the spiritual world. Now what we're going to do first today is we're just going to read Daniel chapter 10 verse 1 through chapter 11 verse 1, and then we're going to look at four truths about the unseen spiritual world, which we find in our passage and which we also find described throughout the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Daniel 10, and let me set the stage. We're in the second half of the book of Daniel, in which there are four visions that God gives to Daniel. And today we come to the fourth and final vision. Chapter 10 is a prologue to this vision in which Daniel has a conversation with a heavenly being. So I'm now going to read the chapter, and I'm going to give a few comments along the way. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. Now, chronologically, this is the final part of this book. Daniel, who in his teenage years had been taken to Babylon and renamed Belteshazzar, is now about 85 years old. Babylonians are long gone. The Persians are in charge. And Darius the Mede, the man who the Persians initially put in charge of Babylon, has apparently died. Cyrus the Persian emperor now reigns over Babylon directly. Verse 2. And the word, this vision that he received, was true. And it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So Daniel's going to receive a complex vision, and he calls it a great conflict. This may mean that the vision describes a conflict, which is certainly true. Or it just may mean that Daniel had a really hard time understanding what this vision meant. But ultimately, he did understand it. Verse 4, it says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now, later in this chapter, we're going to figure out exactly what's going on here. Daniel has been praying and pleading for his people Israel, and he has been expecting an answer from God. But it's been three long weeks, and no answer has come. And so Daniel is distressed, and he is fasting, and he is praying, and he's not anointing himself. He's not washing himself with oil, which was a sign of gladness. And, and he's been very concerned, but now, finally, Daniel's prayers are going to be answered. Verse 5, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes up and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, 
Man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of a children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Wow. What are we to take from this passage? Well, as I said, I think there are four truths we need to learn today. And the first truth is we need to learn that the unseen spiritual world is real. Now, throughout most cultures in world history, this idea of an unseen spiritual world would not be controversial. But we live in 21st century America. And our culture has adopted the philosophical perspective called materialism. Materialism says that the only stuff that really exists is matter, molecules and atoms and subatomic particles and so forth. Materialism denies the reality of the immaterial, things like God and angels and demons and spirits. And because of the predominance of materialistic philosophy in our culture, many people have a hard time believing in the reality of the spiritual realm described in the Bible. In fact, I would say that many Christians even struggle with this idea because the materialism of our culture has so rubbed off on us. Most of the time, most of us think about reality as simply the things that we see and touch. The idea of a spiritual world can seem to us remote and unreal. Yes, we may claim to believe all that the Bible says, but oftentimes we actually live and perceive reality through the framework of materialism. Our view of reality often explains away much that other cultures, much that ancient people would have ascribed to angels and demons. But friends, what I need to tell you first this morning is that materialism is a false philosophy that comes from the fallen world system. And while it may be the dominant philosophy in our culture, believers are nevertheless to resist it. Colossians 2.8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, how do we resist this false philosophy of materialism? Well, the first thing we have to do is recognize that it is a lie. i got to tell you, materialism is, in fact, not really the sophisticated worldview of intelligent scientific folks. In fact, it's not even the perspective of most cutting-edge science today. In 2003, I heard Stephen Hawking give a lecture in the Woodlands where he propounded something called M-theory, which, which advocates that there is an 11-dimensional universe. Seven of these dimensions are attached to an undetectable shadow world, which is separated from our world by less than one centimeter and is able to impact our world. That's what Stephen Hawking said, and he published an article to that effect. I would tell you that science is increasingly open to the idea of the immaterial today. So materialism isn't even really the, the elite scientific theory anymore. But even apart from that, we just need to recognize that materialism is a lie that comes from the fallen world system, which has been condemned by God and the cross of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 2. Now, the second thing we need to do to combat the lie of materialism is we need to renew our minds with the truth. 
We need to spend time reflecting on what God's Word tells us about reality. That God has not only created a material universe, He has also created an unseen spiritual realm. Colossians 1.16 says that by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There is an invisible world. And third, friends, I think we need to actively and intentionally battle to see reality as the Bible describes it. There is more to reality than what we see. The supernatural and the spiritual exist, and we need to, to believe that actively. And I think we've seen this throughout the book of Daniel, haven't we? In this book, we've seen fulfilled prophecy. In this book, we've seen supernatural acts of deliverance. In this book, we've met angels, and we've seen that Daniel had visions. Yes, friends, the spiritual world is real. And we need to know what the Bible says about it. Because the Bible tells us that not only does this world exist, but it impacts us. So let's now see what the Bible has to see about this spiritual world. As we come to our second point this morning, which is that the unseen spiritual world is occupied by powerful supernatural beings. Now, of course, the most important occupant of the unseen spiritual world is the triune God, who is eternal, uncreated, glorious, and holy. He, according to 1 Timothy 6, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, God is omnipresent. His presence and power extend through everything that exists. But God's throne, the unique manifestation of his presence, ultimately exists beyond the sphere of this material universe. The first man in outer space was the Soviet Yuri Gagarin. And you probably know that the Soviet Union was formerly an atheist nation. And so the Soviets told Gagarin that when he went into outer space for the first time, he was supposed to look out the window of his space capsule and see if he saw God and tell them what he found. Now, the Soviets made a big deal about the fact that he didn't see God when he went to outer space. But frankly, that's just stupid. God's throne is not hiding on the other side of the moon. God's residence is in the unseen world. And God's dwelling there is luminous and awe-inspiring. Revelation 4.2 says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. It's magnificent. It's beyond our wildest imagination. God is present in the unseen world. But he's not the only one. God has created other beings who also occupy the spiritual realm. The vision of Isaiah 6 describes the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The vision of Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10 described the cherubim, which we often pronounce as cherubim. And these beings had a human likeness, but each had four faces. A human face, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And each of them had four wings. We find similar beings described in Revelation 4 called the living creatures. Also in Revelation 4, we read of seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seems to be another group of angels. Beyond all that, we saw in recent weeks in the book of Daniel, Gabriel, who had the appearance of a man. The heavenly realm is full of diverse angelic creatures. Now to be clear, the angels are not the disembodied souls of dead people. These are non-human heavenly beings created by God. But angels are not only diverse in their form, they're also diverse because they exist as individuals. And we know that because the Bible gives us the name of two of these angels. In chapters 8 and 9 of Daniel, we met Gabriel. And here in chapter 10, we meet Michael. Now, the Bible does not give us the names of any other angels, although a number of alleged angelic names have come into popular thinking over the years. These names mainly come from various Jewish books written during the intertestamental period and medieval works written about angels and demons. But these sources are unreliable. So we cannot say that we know the names of any angels with any certainty other than Michael and Gabriel. But the fact that these angels have names tell us that they are individual beings. Moreover, angels exist within an organizational structure. In verse 13 of our passage, we read that Michael a particularly powerful angel, is called one of the chief priests. 
This is very similar, or, 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 sorry, the chief princess. This is very similar to the description of Michael found in Jude 9, that he is an archangel. This indicates that angels exist in a hierarchical ordering. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us much about this hierarchy, but it makes sense that there is an order or an organizational principle to the angels because God is a God of order. And so this is consistent with what we know about the fact that God has made an orderly universe. And so angels exist, they are individuals, they are organized, and they are diverse in form. But why did God make angels? Surely if God is all-powerful, he has no need of them. God could do whatever the angels do by himself without ever overstretching himself. That's certainly true. But it forgets an important point, which is that God is a God of means. God could do everything all by himself, but God has chosen to employ angels and people to do his will. All right, what sort of things do angels do? Well, we've seen angels do a number of things in the book of Daniel. For starters, angels assist the people of God. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And we've seen that in this book. In Daniel 6, after surviving the lion's den, Daniel said, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. The angel delivered him. We see the same sort of thing in the book of Acts. When the apostles are released from prison by angels, angels help the people of God. Angels are also used by God to judge sin. We saw this back in chapter 4, when King Nebuchadnezzar went insane because of his arrogance. And in Daniel 4.17, the king is told this sentence of madness is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. See the same idea elsewhere in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 24, an angel unleashed a plague on Jerusalem. In Acts 12, an angel struck the arrogant Herod with a horrible death. In Revelation, the angels blow trumpets and pour out bowls, sending God's wrath on the earth. Angels execute divine judgment. Angels also give glory to God. In Isaiah 6, the prophet sees the seraphim calling back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation 4, John says that the living creatures day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. More than that, according to Zechariah chapter 1, there are angels who the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. These are good traffic cops. They watch for disturbances and turmoil. But another thing that angels do, and, and one I, that we're going to hone in here for a second, is angels announce God's word. In the Gospels, it's angels who proclaim the birth of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus. In the book of Acts, angels tell Philip, Cornelius, and Paul where to go and what to do. And in the last few chapters of the book of Daniel we've looked at, we've seen angels announcing God's word. In chapter 7, an unnamed angel interpreted Daniel's first vision. In chapter 8, Gabriel interpreted Daniel's second vision. In chapter 9, Gabriel delivered a third vision to Daniel. And today in chapter 10, the fourth vision is brought by a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Who is this being? Well, some interpreters have read this description and noticed that it's very similar to the description we find in Revelation 1 of the risen Christ, whom John saw as one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, his voice was like the roar of many waters, and his face was like the, sign, like the sun shining in full strength. In a number of points, these two descriptions are very similar. And this has led some interpreters to conclude the person who Daniel sees here is the Lord, the pre-incarnate Son of God. But while the description of Daniel 10 is similar to the description of Revelation 1, there's one fact, I think, which strongly indicates that this is not the Lord. Remember what's going on in this chapter. Daniel has prayed a prayer about the welfare of Israel, and he waits for God to answer him, and he waits for three weeks. And when the angel appears, he tells Daniel, from the first day you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. In other words, God answered Daniel's prayer immediately three weeks ago and sent this angel to him. But why did it take three weeks for him to appear? Because in verse 13, this being says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 
21 days. This being was detained by the prince of Persia. We'll talk about who that is more in a minute. What's more, this being says he could get away from the prince of Persia only when Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, if this heavenly being were the Lord, I would submit that it would be impossible for him to be restrained by anything in this world, including this prince of Persia, no matter how strong he is. The Lord would have no need of the archangel Michael to free himself. God's stronger than Michael. God's stronger than any other being uh, by an, an infinite factor. 1 John 4, 4 tells us he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God's greater than Satan or any other demonic being. And so the description of this being's difficulties with the prince of Persia leads me to the conclusion this is not the Lord. This is just an angel. And this angel says to Daniel in verse 14, He has come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. This angel has come in answer to Daniel's prayer to announce God's word to Daniel. So, angels exist. They minister to, sin, to, to believers. They judge sin. They glorify God. They patrol the earth and they announce God's word. But there's one more thing that angels do. They go to war. And we see this now as we come to our third point, which is that the unseen spiritual world is a place of hostility. God created angels to accomplish His will, but the Bible tells us that some of the angels rebelled against God. Now it seems that the first and greatest of these rebel angels is Satan. The term Satan is a title, it just means adversary. Satan is the chief adversary of God, but Satan is not God's equal. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. Satan is none of these things, although he is immensely wise and knowledgeable and powerful and resourceful. Now, the fall of Satan is the subject of a lot of speculation. And frankly, a lot of what people believe today about the fall of Satan comes not from the Bible, but from Dante's Inferno and from John Milton's Paradise Lost. For instance, the Bible never says that the angelic name of Satan was Lucifer. That name never appears anywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. Lucifer is a Latin word which first appeared in the Vulgate, the uh, Latin translation of the Bible, in its translation of a Hebrew astronomical term in Isaiah 14.12. Dante interpreted this as a proper name and popularized the idea that this was the personal name of Satan. When the translators of the King James Version came upon this Hebrew term in Isaiah, they didn't know what to do with it, and so they just lifted the Latin word from the Vulgate and put it in their translation. And Milton, in turn, was the English author who popularized the idea within the English-speaking world that this was the proper name of Satan. But that is not found anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. In the same way, many people have held that the prophecies of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe the fall of Satan. But both of these passages are clearly addressed to individuals who seem to be the political rulers of Babylon and the city of Tyre. Now we could say, well, yes, but this is the, the angel behind them. That may be. But we must concede that neither of these passages ever expressly speaks the name of Satan or makes that connection. So I would tell you that I think the clearest statement we have in the Bible about the fall of Satan is 1 Timothy 3.6, which speaks of the qualifications of an elder and says that he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is the surest biblical text that we have for definitively knowing that Satan fell because of pride. But Satan did not fall alone. Other angels fell too. Now, the Bible does not tell us when this happened, or if the angelic rebellion happened only at one time, or if it has happened across the course of history. What we do know is that some of the fallen angels have already been judged by God, and they are presently constrained awaiting final, condu final condemnation. Jude 6 says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. But there are other fallen angels who seem to be free to continue their wicked activities. And we call them the demons. Now, the Bible never explicitly says that demons are fallen angels, but this seems to be the likeliest explanation for the existence of demons. I also justify this conclusion because in Matthew 25, 41, the Lord Jesus says the eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know that there are angels which are loyal to God and angels which are opposed to God. 
And the result of this opposition is hostility within the unseen realm. Revelation 12.7 says, War arose in heaven between Michael and his angels and the dragon, that is Satan, and his angels. Now, Revelation 12 is a notoriously difficult passage. And interpreters have sometimes uh, understood this reference to war in heaven as a statement about something that happened in the past, or a statement about something that happened at the birth of Christ, or something about that will happen at the end of history. The truth is we can't know for sure. But what we do know is that there has been, there continues to be, and there always will be until the very end of history, spiritual warfare. The Bible indicates that the unseen world continues to be a battleground between the holy angels and the fallen angels. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that fallen angels may still have access to heaven, the very domain of God. The book of Job reports that Satan could enter heaven alongside other angels and converse directly with God. In the same way, Ephesians chapter 6 describes demons as spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so it seems that across the spiritual world there are both angels and demons, and these forces are locked in combat with one another. But, while spiritual warfare occurs in the unseen world, its results are often manifested here in the material world that we live in. We're told this in Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The evil deeds of angels manifest themselves in our world through the conduct of people. And Paul says that this is so true that we could mistakenly think that those people are our adversaries when in fact they're not. They're just pawns for the angelic forces that stand behind them doing evil things. Now Daniel 10, our text today, shows us that angels have real connections and impacts on our material world. The angel who had been sent to Daniel winds up being detained by the prince of Persia. Who is this fellow? Well, in context, the prince of Persia is not simply a human ruler. We know that because the same term prince is used to describe the archangel Michael. So we should understand the prince of Persia to be an angelic being. And since he opposed God's will and opposed God's messenger, we should understand him to be a demon. But why is a demon connected with the nation of Persia? Why is a demon connected with any nation? Well, there's a very interesting statement made in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. It says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Deuteronomy 32 speaks about what happened at Babel when God divided the nations. God's plan in dividing the nations was that he would ultimately elect one of the nations to be his chosen people, which of course was Israel, which at the time of Babel did not yet exist. Have you ever thought, well, what about the rest of the nations? Here's the answer. Deuteronomy 32 says God assigned them borders. He told them where they would live. And he also assigned them to the sons of God, to angels. This explains why we see an angel connected to Persia in this chapter, and an angel connected to Greece, or angels connected to any other country. Now in the New Testament, we sometimes find descriptions of angelic beings that reflect this idea that angels are connected to nations. Often when speaking of the unseen world, the Apostle Paul speaks of principalities and powers. The ESV translates it rulers and authorities. And these terms were Greek terms used to denote rulers who had particular territories that they were over. And so Paul's use of these terms may refer to the fact that angels had geographical areas of dominion over various nations. Even more significantly, in the New Testament, when Paul speaks about these rulers and authorities, these angels are always presented negatively. For instance, Colossians 2, at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. So then it seems that we should understand that God judged the nations at Babel by turning them over to demons. And so each Gentile nation is empowered by and attached to a demon. That is a sobering reality about political power in this world, if that's true, isn't it? And these demons project their power and occasionally find themselves in conflict. 
The angel who speaks with Daniel here refers in this passage to three specific angelic battles. One which took place a few years before this chapter, one which was raging as this chapter went on, and one which was in the future. So let's consider these battles. The first is described in the final verses of our passage, Daniel 10.31. Says, there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. All right, so this battle took place in the first year of Darius the Mede, about four years before chapter 10. This was the year that the Babylonian Empire fell and the year that the Persian Empire came to power. And at that time, this angel says, he participated in a battle fighting alongside the archangel Michael. Now, who is Michael? Notice that chapter 10, verse 31 calls Michael your prince. And the pronoun here, your, is a plural pronoun. So this is not Daniel's personal angel. Michael is an angel attached to Daniel's people, Israel. Same point is made in chapter 12. Michael is the great prince who has charge of your people, that is Israel. So unlike the Gentile nations ruled by demons, Israel is the elect nation of God and is guarded not by a demon, but by a glorious and holy archangel. And Michael is fighting on behalf of God's people at the time that the Persian Empire came to power. They say, well, what's the purpose of this battle? We can't know for sure. But there is one historical event that we know that impacted Israel in the year the Persian Empire came to power. The book of Ezra tells us that it was in this year the Emperor Cyrus issued a decree allowing the, the exiled Jews to return home and rebuild the temple. And so perhaps that's what's being described here on the angelic side, that Michael prevailed for the Israelite people against other angels who wanted to keep them enslaved. And so the decree was issued. Maybe that's what's being described here. We don't know. That's the first battle. The second battle rages at the time that this chapter took place. And again, it's contested by Michael and the angel speaking with Daniel. And this time they're fighting the prince of Persia. What's this about? Well, again, we can't know for sure. But the book of Ezra tells us that when the Israelites returned home and started to rebuild the temple, they encountered terrible opposition from the Samaritans. And the Samaritans wrote to the Persians and said, please stop the rebuilding of the temple. And Cyrus said, okay. And the temple stopped being rebuilt for a long time. This may be why Daniel is so sorrowful at the beginning of this chapter and praying for his nation. And some commentators think these events may be the result of the angelic conflict described here, that the demon of Persia was trying to restrict Israel from rebuilding the temple and worshiping God. We can't know for sure, but it's possible. Likewise, we learn here about another angelic conflict which is in the future from Daniel's time. Verse 20. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Daniel wants to know about the future of his people. And this angel says he's come to reveal to Daniel what is written in the book of truth. The Bible tells us that God has decreed the end from the beginning. Psalm 139.16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Here we find a similar idea. There is a book that apparently records the events which are to come, and this angel has come to tell Daniel what this book says will happen to Israel. And part of what God has decreed for the future of Israel is more conflict and hostility. In time, Persia would fall. We saw this predicted back in chapters 7 and 8. But that doesn't mean an end to the suffering of the people of God because Persia will be replaced by Greece. And as this takes place on earth, it also takes place in the angelic realm, we're told. The prince of Persia recedes and the prince of Greece appears and the battle is joined again. And this battle works itself on earth in the events described in chapter 11, culminating in the emergence of an evil king, Antiochus IV, who terribly persecutes the people of God. These verses seem to indicate that what happens on earth in various nations is largely a result of what happens behind the scenes in the angelic world. There are demons and perhaps hierarchies of demons connected to various nations. These demons vie for power with one another, explaining the rise and fall of nations. These demons seek to harm the people of God. In the Old Testament, national Israel. Today we talk about the church. 
And we should understand outbreaks of persecution as earthly manifestations of demonic activity. But we also need to see in these passages that God has not allowed his people to face overwhelming spiritual attack on their own. God has assigned angels to act in his people's defense. Israel has Michael. We don't know what sort of angelic support believers have today. But Hebrews tells us angels are ministering servants uh, sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. We should expect that the Lord has assigned us a protection detail. Now that doesn't mean that we should believe that we each have a guardian angel. That is not taught in the Bible. Although there is one unclear verse in Matthew 18 which may suggest that angels watch over children or perhaps believers. But if God has assigned angels to defend Israel, and if Revelation chapters 2 and 3 tell us that angels are connected not just to nations but also to local churches, then should we not believe that there are angelic forces that work to defend us today? And that's in addition to the protection that we receive from the Lord himself. So there is angelic combat. There is war in heaven. And it manifests itself in our world. And we need to understand when we see the movements and the conflicts of nations on earth. And when we see governments move against the people of God, this reflects spiritual realities in the unseen world. What happens on the nightly news is not just at the discretion of the whims of men. It is often the outgrowth of angelic and demonic conflict. Now I want to take just one more moment here to point out some ways that demons manifest their attacks in the material world. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. One of Satan's big goals in the spiritual war is he wants to destroy people. The Lord Jesus put it like this in John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This gives us some insight into the strategy of the demonic realm. Demons want to kill and destroy people, and they employ lies to bring about that ruination. And this plays out in a number of ways according to the Bible. Demons can attack unbelievers directly by possessing or otherwise tormenting them. Demonized people in the Bible are often depicted as engaging in self-destructive acts, like cutting themselves or throwing themselves on burning fires. Demons try to get these people to kill themselves. Demons sometimes seduce unbelievers by uh, giving them false systems of religion. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that the demons stand behind every false religion in the world. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that Satan is able to disguise himself as an angel of light. And while fallen angels may look beautiful, they give people toxic false gospels, according to Galatians 1. And this is significant, because both Mormonism and Islam hold to false gospels which they claim were given to them by angels of light. Demons also attack people, believing and unbelieving, by controlling the levers of culture which is around us desiring to pressure us to conform to the sinful patterns of this fallen world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that Satan is functionally the god of this world, and as demons stand over the various nations, it's not hard to see why every culture on earth stands in opposition to God's gospel and God's people. Now, not every culture is the same. Some cultures are very legalistic. Some cultures, like ours, are very licentious, right? Uh, our culture tries to seduce people away from the truth of the gospel by telling them lies about the sins of the flesh and how wonderful they are. But every culture in the world is alike in one respect. They all oppose the rule of Christ. And that's not an accident. That is because there is one intelligence which stands behind everything that's going on in the world system, and that is the mind of Satan. Moreover, sometimes demons attack believers quite directly. It's at this point that the, the subject of the spiritual world leaves the realm of the intellectual and it becomes very personal. Friends, you need to know, if you know Jesus Christ, you have an adversary who wants to take you out. Do you know that? They want to kill you. They want to hurt you. They want to introduce temptation into your life in the hope that you destroy your witness and your family and your church. They want to whisper lies to you that they know you're prone to believe, hoping to drive you to despair and suicide. Friends, you have an enemy. So you are engaged in this warfare. But this leads us to our fourth and final point, which is that God has given us the resources that we need to be protected in this spiritual conflict. 
Now, as I said at the beginning of our time together, unfortunately, the world of angels and demons is a subject that leads to a lot of misinformation. There are New Age people who are trying to channel their guardian angel by praying to a crystal, and they're opening themselves up to the demonic. There are charismatic teachers out there who are teaching false and dangerous things about spiritual warfare, saying that believers need to go aggressively on the offensive against the demonic, that we need to discern which demons have territorial influence over our region and discover their secret names so that we can bind them and command them and rebuke them and expel them to hell. And many of the people that I know that have taken these things to heart are some of the most immature believers, if they're even believers. And suddenly they fancy themselves as real-life ghostbusters who are going out to fight demons in the name of Jesus. But friends, that is not how the Bible talks about spiritual warfare. In fact, much of that is exactly opposite to what the Bible says. Spiritual warfare is not something that we should seek out and relish because demons are extremely powerful. The seven Jewish exorcists in Acts 19 who got beat up by a demonized person would tell you that. But friends, we don't have to learn their lesson the hard way. We can just look at Daniel 10. Look at verse 4. Daniel says he's just standing by the Tigris River when he has this angelic encounter. And verse 7 tells us he was not alone at first. Other men were with him. But as the angel approached Daniel, what happened? The other men who were with him fled in terror. Now we're told that they didn't even see the angel. The angel's very presence caused them terrible fear and they fled. Well, how did Daniel respond to the angel? He's been around angels before a lot, right? So this is no big deal. Well, actually, verse 8 says Daniel lost all of his strength and his appearance changed. Verse 9 says he swooned and collapsed, which is also what happened when Daniel stood before Gabriel in chapter 8. In verse 10, the angel picks Daniel up and says, You're greatly loved, you're precious to God. And it seems like it took Daniel a while to get up off his hands and knees, according to the text. But by verse 15, Daniel is on the ground again. He is unable to speak. And even after another angel strengthens Daniel, he says in verse 16 that he is in pain, that he is weak, and that he cannot breathe. And this is a friendly angel who's come to give him some information. What would it be like to stand in the presence of a hostile angel who intended to do you harm? Let's pray we never find out. People going out there seeking these kind of encounters, challenging demons, and claiming to be exorcists are messing with powers they can't possibly imagine. It is folly, and frankly, it's sinful. Because God is a God of order, and nature is filled with hierarchies, and at present, angels outrank humans. They are more powerful than we are. And we are strongly warned in the book of Jude against challenging, rebuking, or speaking against any angel, including fallen ones. Jude 8 tells us that it is the false teacher who urges people to, quote, blaspheme the glorious ones. What's he mean? Well, he gives us an example. Jude 9. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, here's Michael, one of the most powerful beings in all existence. When he encountered Satan, he did not say anything directly against Satan. All he did was refer the matter to the Lord and ask God to handle it. And that is the example that Jude gives us of how we should properly uh, respect the glorious ones. And here the glorious one is Satan and demons. Now how often do we hear Christians praying, rebuking, binding, or denouncing demons? Friends, this is contrary to what Jude 9 says. It is sinfully presumptuous and it is dangerous. Now, people who are into this sort of thing usually retort that in Matthew 10, Jesus gave the apostles authority over unclean spirits. And that's true. But friends, the apostles were a unique gift to the church. You and I are not the apostles. And so friends, my counsel to you is do not challenge the demonic world. I've known people who have, and it turned out disastrously for them. It is powerful and hazardous. Or they are powerful and hazardous to deal with. The only advance that the Bible commands us to make against the kingdom of darkness is through evangelism, not playing exorcist. But sometimes spiritual warfare is unavoidable when the demonic world decides to target us. And when that happens, we need to remember two things. First, we need to follow the example of Michael. 
when he faced Satan, he invoked the Lord's name and he asked God to handle it. And that is certainly something we should do in moments of spiritual warfare. Ask God to intervene and deliver us because God is greater than any demon and our victory over in spiritual warfare is related to Christ's victorious triumphant power. But the second thing that we need to remember is that God has given us the resources that we need to withstand the attacks of the evil one. The most important passage on this point is Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. There's a whole sermon on this passage, or at least, at least one. Let me just make four real quick points about this text. Number one, all the verbs in this passage are stationary verbs. We are not depicted in this passage as being on, on the advance against the kingdom of darkness. We are not on the offensive. Rather, all of the verbs portray us as being on defense. We are being attacked, and our goal is simply to stand firm. As James 4 puts it, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the strategy. Second, we are able to stand, not because of our own strength, but because of the Lord's might. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul uses the same term he uses in chapter 6, verse 10, to describe the mighty power of God with which he raised Jesus from the dead. God offers that same overcoming power to believers to help us withstand the attacks of the evil one. Third, we withstand spiritual attack by putting on the armor of God. For a long time I heard people always say, put on the armor of God, and all I kept thinking was, what does that mean? Okay, this is an extended metaphor, and it comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is described as a warrior armed with a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness. And here we are told to put on those very things. And the idea is this. In Christ, God allows believers to imitate his own moral attributes. In fact, that's what the book of Ephesians commands at the header of all of this entire section that ends with the armor of God's passage. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Ephesians says... Be imitators of God as beloved children. So that's what this is about, imitating God. Just as God's own glorious holiness and mighty power insulates him from the attacks of spiritual adversaries, we are instructed to follow God by emulating his moral attributes in our lives, and so we draw strength from his power to be protected from our spiritual adversaries. So we are to live lives committed to the truth. We are to gird our hearts and minds with righteousness. We are to be at peace with one another because of the gospel. We are to allow our faith to extinguish the enemy's lies. We are to find security in the truth of the salvation that God has given us. And we are to clutch the word of God which exposes the lies of our enemy. As we live a life marked by these things, we will draw strength from God and we will be able to withstand the attacks that come at us from the evil one. Where we fail in these areas, where we have left openings in the armor, we expose ourselves to temptation and possible destruction. So live a life that reflects the moral excellency of God, and you will be able to stand in Christ's strength in the midst of spiritual warfare. That's what the passage is getting at. But fourth, and, and this is a point that's often missed in Ephesians 6, we are commanded to persevere in prayer for one another. This is the one corporate tactic we are given in spiritual warfare. We are to pray at all times for each other. Friends, this is why we send out the prayer list. This is why we have a prayer meeting in this church, but we shouldn't just be praying once a week. Friends, we're doing this not just to look busy, but because we all need to actively be committed to praying for one another. This is a vital resource that God has given us for our protection in spiritual warfare. We saw in chapter 9, Daniel prayed. 
And we saw that God answered Daniel's prayer there because Daniel was loved by God. Daniel was precious to God. We see that same language repeated twice in chapter 10. Believing, friends, we are also loved by God every bit as much as Daniel was. God gave his son to buy us. And God will answer our prayers and defend us when we are under attack. So there are hostile spiritual powers. They target believers. They want to destroy us by wielding lies and temptation and sometimes even physical affliction. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? He says it's a messenger from Satan. But praise be to God, God has given us the strength and the resources to withstand all of these sorts of attacks. So let's conclude. In Daniel 10, we see that Daniel prays and God answers his prayer. But the answer is delayed because of spiritual warfare, a warfare taking place in the unseen realm, but which manifests its reality in our material world. Eventually, the angels of the Lord prevail over the demons, and the angel brings the visionary message, which we'll start looking at in a few weeks. And from this today, we have seen that the unseen spiritual realm is real, that it is occupied by powerful angels and demons who are locked in combat with one another, a hostility that sometimes impacts us. Friends, we must be cognizant of the reality of this spiritual world. We need to understand that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us individually and collectively. We need to be watchful and vigilant, and we need to regularly live out the armor of God and thereby always be in a state of preparedness to encounter spiritual attack. And yes, we must persevere in prayer for one another. You know, the Bible says some fascinating things about the spiritual world, but at the same time, we need to be careful because some people get unhealthily fascinated by this subject. You know, the, the Bible tells us the angels long to look into the gospel. They don't fully understand what's going on on our side. And sometimes people long to look into the spiritual world. They grow dissatisfied with what the Bible says and they seek answers in bad places. And sometimes it leads them to really dangerous spiritual outcomes. So my hope for us is that we will meditate on what the Bible actually says about this important subject, knowing that God has told us all that we need to know about this matter in the Bible and that we will be content to leave the rest to him. So let us hope in Christ, let us trust Him, and let us remember that He has won the spiritual war in principle at the cross, and His victory will soon be manifest across both the material and the spiritual world. And let us remember that when the evil day comes upon us, Proverbs 18 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is 